0: Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined, as always, by Dimitri Kalyagin. This is episode 34. Uh, we're recording this on the weekend of the 8th of July, 2023, and this is the week before... This will be our final episode, I guess, before the big NATO Vilnius summit in Lithuania, as well as, I mean... We expect a few big things to come in the midst of all of that. You know, we think Sweden may end up in NATO. We have big things about Ukraine. Today we're gonna to really focus on Zelensky in Turkey, meeting with the EP, meeting with Erdogan, as well as some other stuff going on generally in the eastern Mediterranean, stuff going on with BRICS. So we're gonna get right into this, probably have some predictions for then that we're gonna you know, we're gonna debrief the meeting at the next episode, assuming, you know, nothing else even crazier happens. So Dmitry, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for asking. Just
1: following some of this
0: incredible news from the Mediterranean
1: around the Black Sea. Of course, you know we've been kind of circulating that geographical area for a few months now. But it does seem like the world is revolving around around the center, which is seems to be either Israel or Turkey and you know, just around that vicinity. Well, they used to say Constantinople was the center of the world, or or it was Jerusalem technically. But these two these two particular countries are somewhat related, and the cities are related too. So. Of course, the great news coming up is the big NATO summit happening in Vilnius, Lithuania. So, again, the question of whether or not, you know, whether or not Sweden will finally be accepted you know, despite all of the Turkish issues with the Quran burning, which, you know, was brought up in the Russian Duma in the parliament several times. And the Russians were using it as a bit of a virtue signaling token to support, you know, to sort of garner support from their uh, local um Muslim populations such as the Tatars, the Chechens, and the Dagestanis, as well as other uh, immigrants from Central Asia. But, you know, that set aside, the whole issue of, you know, Turkey opposing Sweden's entry into NATO has been raised a couple of times last year. And again, today, I think, uh, or at least this week, it'll be one of the major subjects, besides, of course, more support for Ukraine. I don't think, Conrad, personally, that we will be seeing, for example, uh, you know, Erdogan or somebody. Somebody like Poland or uh, one of these major actors actually actively pushing for Ukraine's membership into Ukraine, uh, into NATO. At least, maybe not not at this Vilnius summit. I think what we, uh, you know, what we will probably see is uh, a new military support package, maybe combined like a combined funding effort from all all of the NATO member countries. You know, essentially prepared for Ukraine and Zelensky might. I don't, I don't believe Zelensky will be present at Vilnius. Have you heard anything about that? Will he be present to accept any of the prizes there, or will he appear via video conference?
0: I haven't heard any confirmation on one way or the other. It wouldn't surprise me if last minute he appeared by video, but I'm I, assuming personally he wants to be there. And speaking of, I guess, him being in person, we should just get right into his little foray down into Turkey. And I think I saw some reports. It was only from one Turkish source, so maybe we'll get it confirmed while we're recording here, like it happened so many times. But as of now, it seems that Putin has supposedly canceled his trip to Ankara that was supposed to happen in a month in the midst of what we just saw, which was, of course, Zelensky visit Turkey. He met with Erdogan. He met with ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew. And in his meeting with Erdogan, Erdogan said that Turkey should, I mean, that Ukraine should be allowed to join NATO. And then he gave a bunch of these Azov fighters that had been staying in Turkey and had signed a deal with the Russians that they wouldn't be let back to Ukraine, were then allowed to go back to Ukraine. So as far as what that goes for the actual battlefield, I'm not particularly chapped by it as far as I'm worried those guys are give again what they have to get sent back to the front like they're going to have another chance to die like okay that that is what it is but as far as from a geopolitics international relations perspective it seems that for better or for worse some people say that erdogan's just doing this because of the nato summit coming up i'm more inclined to say that he's just doing this because he doesn't have to pretend to be neutral anymore because the election's over
1: yeah that's right and also perhaps like we spoke about this on our recent A4 Hour episode eleven, but there is that grain deal factor as well. So the, the Russia has extended the grain deal several times, which of course greatly benefits Turkey, and Russia has actually given a lot of these token considerations to the Erdogan government over the years, especially building up to the election. Some Russian commentators even said openly that Erdogan would not have won those Really uh, you know, there's precious several percentage points, if not for the support out of Moscow, you know, kind of urging their maybe more Christian, uh Christian Armenian population to perhaps, or even, you know, those adjacent to Russia, those with the more Russian mindset to support Erdogan and Putin kind of coming out in Erdogan's support before the election could have maybe even somewhat bolstered his uh his chances of winning. And in fact he did win and now it seems he has turned his back. But one of our predictions did come true, Conrad. We did say that. What, if Erdogan does make peace with the Syrians, with the Azerbaijanis, the Armenians, and kind of uh, you know waves a friendly hand at Iran, we will see him pivoting Turkey from the eastern, eastern and southern conflicts to the west, and so focusing more on Greece, focusing more on Ukraine and what's happening in Europe, and that's exactly what we're seeing. Turkey and Anatolia, uh, you know, and Erdogan essentially they're not focusing on a two-front geopolitical confrontation here. They're not focusing on the Middle East so much as. Uh, what's happening in Europe. And this is the first time, really, when Turkey has really given uh, NATO and Ukraine more of its attention than, say, uh, even last year. Besides all the various prisoner exchanges and, you know, Turkey kind of playing this neutral party, finally Erdogan, you're right, has... Exposed himself for the uh, for the person that he is, and we, we've known him to be a shrewd politician before. He is is a real politique master, and just like Putin in the past, who you know, Putin in the early two thousands pretended to be a liberal, and even George Bush said, "I looked into Putin's eyes, and I saw a you know kind and thoughtful soul," or whatever he said. I saw a soul through his eyes. You know, everybody said good things about Putin in the early two thousands, and then they realized this guy actually wasn't a liberal, and he wasn't a real. Uh, you know, Western Democrats. So perhaps Erdogan, you know, these politicians know how to play play these games of deceit. So perhaps this is finally him revealing his true uh, intentions. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, in our coverage of the election, we like, on the one hand, I was kind of acceleration-pilled, wanted maybe Kilis to win, you know, to see what would happen. But the other hand, you know, we had nicer things to say about Erdogan because he was less of a Western chill. But I'm sick of saying nice things about that watermelon salesman. You know, he's just a... He he can go back to the depths of Central Asia from where he belongs, as far as I'm concerned. And it looks like the Russians are, you know, I think that if they realize that what you're saying, that if uh, Turkey is going to try to, you know, patch up some of the serious stuff and pivot more towards the Western kind of angle of their foreign relations, I mean, that that makes sense considering that their proxies got beat back really recently by Russian air forces in Syria But having said, like the Russians may not allow that to happen. I mean, this is just yesterday. The commander of the Russian peacekeepers in Nagorno-Karabakh said that the Armenian Prime Minister Pashinyan is the one, you know, responsible for, you know, he's responsible for the uh, blockade situation in uh, Azerbaijan with the lock-in corridor, and so it seems that uh, you know that whole situation is going to keep going down at the Russians uh, at the Russians level, and you know, it does seem that Turkey is you know, the Russians have kind of clamped down and that Erdogan's like, all right, I'm not going to go into Syria as much. It seems that you guys are, you know, you're not siding with the Armenians in Armenia, I guess. So we're going to, but, you know, it doesn't seem that, you know, Turkey on the one hand isn't uh, cooperating with the Russians as it seems. And look, Putin seems to have canceled his trip to Ankara. And I don't know if you have any details about the gas hub, but I imagine that people might start uh, bringing that into question because despite the fact that You know, it was just a few months ago that Erdogan and Putin were talking about, you know, totally helping overturn the Western dominated energy, you know, cartel and have this massive gas hub in Turkey. I
1: think 100% that's being put on hold at the moment. I don't think anything besides Blue Stream that currently exists with the Black Sea, I don't think there will be any more mass building projects, at least based on, you know, gas has been the main talking point since we've even uh, begun World War Now in October last year. But because, because you know, if you recall the uh, North Stream getting sh- shut down and, you know, the entire, I guess the entire energy aspect of the of the current geopolitical, conflict is such a key one. I don't think Putin will be necessarily giving that up or sort of succumbing to friendship with Turkey and kind of uh, compromising even. Because what we've seen recently that Putin's uh, sort of image has been that of Uh, This subtle compromise, in fact, uh, we see this with Prigozhin, who we'll mention briefly, there isn't really any updates besides the fact that Prigozhin's not being prosecuted by anybody in Russia at the moment, he's freely flying, it seems, at least his jet officially is flying between Minsk and St. Petersburg, so he's retrieving his personal assets, I'm sure it's not, I'm sure the Russian government isn't going to allow him to take his kilograms of cocaine with him to Minsk, nor that cocaine is even legal in Belarus, I'm sure it's not. But um, nevertheless, Prigozhin was provided some of his personal assets, like millions of dollars were actually taken back, and they weren't actually seized by the FSB or the R- Russian police or the prosecutor's office, whomever's looking after this particular affair. But it does seem like uh, Putin, despite all the strong words against Prigozhin, against the traitorous Wagner uh, officials who started the mutiny, they are being let off. And in fact, nobody's in fact gotten in trouble for all the dead pilots and all the Air Force officers killed on that uh, really strange and eventful 24th of June. And I think that's kind of where the story ends, at least this chapter of it. And nevertheless, uh, it, in saying that, Putin's image, at least in foreign policy, domestic policy, is is one that's being shaken up. People are saying, look, Putin's, got the short end of the stick here. Erdogan has betrayed him openly. The Russian government supported the grain deal. They supported Erdogan, and now they're being spat at in the face. How will they respond? And if, if Putin goes ahead and says, well, let's have our gas projects go ahead anyway. On one hand, it does show this sort of image of clemency in the fact that, look, I'm a realistic politician, Erdogan. I understand you need to support NATO. You're, of course, one of its leading members. On the other hand, I think we're past that sort of realistic Diplomatic relationships. I think it's now it's it's, it's about showing sh- your strong character traits, which um which is a bit barbaric. These days, let's, let's let's just put it kind of bluntly. I think we're past the. It's it's all about PR at this point. It's about PR for both Erdogan, for Putin, for NATO, and you know Zelensky is the master of that, as he appears in the EP in Istanbul itself, the old capital of the Orthodox world, Constantinople. And uh, frankly, you know Erdogan inviting Zelensky to Ankara again. This could be also an attack upon the Russian Church in general, because you know I'm sure Erdogan, despite his him not being an Orthodox Christian, understands the tensions between the Russian Church and the Ecumenical pop Patriarch who he has in his back pocket, right? So there is this consideration that hey, well Zelensky, you come to Ankara, but also stop by Istanbul and maybe have a chat with the EP, who will absolutely trigger the Russian Patriarch and will trigger the entire. Uh, russian orthodox church and not just that but it'll kind of so this could be almost a double you know slap the left cheek turn the right one sort of you know kind of situation going on here
0: no i definitely think so and i think even i think the u.s would have probably had an interest in Zelensky stopping by the fanar as well as far as you know i think they might have a little more influence over that than even erdogan per se although that being said remember i mean we can't forget how quickly the like we all do how quickly and how much the west wanted to ultimately win, but they immediately congratulated Erdogan. There wasn't, like, some hand-wringing. There was no challenged election. There wasn't anything like that. So it seems that, you know, they may have gotten some assurances that he had no interest in, you know, going off the the radar, going off the reservation or anything as far as the, the plan goes in Ukraine. And, you know, if you want to hear what the plan is in Ukraine as far as, you know, them boys is concerned, you can listen to episode 11 of Ether Hour. But... I guess we have to talk, I guess that brings us back to the persecution of the church because, you know, it had been a few episodes, Dimitri, where it hadn't really, we hadn't really seen as many of the crazy videos, the headlines weren't being made about just the blatant, you know, persecution of just practicing Christians. But now we're seeing what appears to be the EP going all in with Zelensky. We've seen more and more soldiers inside the Kiev caves, Lavra, inside the Kiev Pechersk Lavra, And it seems now that the EP has openly said that they're ready to turn the Kiev, uh, the Pachersk Lavra, into a stavropagial monastery of the Ecumenical Patriarchate. And that was said in the presence of Zelensky. In fact, Zelensky sat basically, just like the monks of Mount Athos at one point, put Putin kind of on that throne, as we've talked about before. Patriarch Bartholomew almost did the same thing effectively with Zelensky. And not only that, someone, uh, Deacon Christopher on Twitter noticed this. He put the the Archbishop, Stefan, of the... Macedonian Orthodox Church, Archbishop of Macedonian Ohrid, he put him on the side of the closed-off bishop's chair, you know, with the rope across the the arm symbolizing that the bishop is not currently present. So they both elevated Zelensky to this sort of, you know, revered civic leader, almost an emperor, and then they basically denied the Episcopal status of someone that has just been received into pan-Orthodoxy over a a somewhat silly naming dispute that you know i've talked about the macedonia greek naming thing in the past of course we've talked about how you know the autocephaly from serbia being received and them not receiving the one from the ep is you know was angering to patriarch bartholomew but dimitri what does this mean like how is like how is this monastery going What what are they trying to do to this monastery
1: well i think people need to understand that since Since at least 1917, since the Bolsheviks took over in October, November, uh, during the actual communist revolution in Russia, a lot of the property was seized from the church, including monasteries, churches, over the next few years during the Russian civil war. Cathedrals were seized, and they were actually written written down. You know, perhaps they once belonged either to the Russian Imperial government or to the local monastery authorities, but they were actually taken and appropriated by the state. You know, you read read You can read about the Holmogory Monastery in the north of Karelia near Arkhangelsk, or the, um, the famous Solovki Monastery. Some of these monasteries were used as concentration camps and gulags. But who did the monasteries actually belong to after 1917? Well, the Soviet state. And well, of course, after the Soviet Union fell apart, the monasteries, especially such. Uh, notable ones such as the Kiev Pechersk Lava, the monks themselves mention that, hey, we only came back to the monastery in the 1960s, which means what? During the World War II and during the Stalin years, mostly even maybe early Khrushchev, the Russian Orthodox monks and the Ukrainian monks didn't actually have access to the lava because it is officially state museum property. And this legally remains so until today, which after 1991, of course, all, all this property went under the control of the, uh, you know, the, the, the Rada, the Ukrainian government officially, with its free branches, etc. So the President and the Parliament of Ukraine officially have control over the lover It is their property. It does not belong to uh, the monks, to Metropolitan Onufri or his predecessors. And this is key because essentially the government legally can just say, well, look, your lease or whatever... Um, Document of authority you have that that you know that was granted over this particular over these halls over these cathedrals in the center of Kiev it's it's taken away look we're going to breach the con- or you've breached some sort of contract they can actually take control of it in a completely legal fashion and bring in law enforcement in order to you know uphold these legal and it wouldn't even technically be pros you know persecution per se similar to how in the Soviet Union nobody was actually persecuted legally and, you know, if we're going to be judicial about it and pharisaical. No one was persecuted because they believed in Christ. They were persecuted because they were uh, supporting the counter-revolution. This is what all the new martyrs were allegedly shot for because, well, they were found to be supporters of the counter-revolution and supporters of class division, not because they actually venerated Christ or because they were orthodox. But we know officially, you know, the official wording doesn't really matter here. Nevertheless, that was the excuse. And well, what I've heard from from some sources in Russia, at least, this is a little bit uh, a little bit kind of covert. Maybe I'm not sure if it's true or not, but it should be kept in mind is that apparently, Metro- uh, you know, not false Metropolitan Epiphany, as well as the false Patriarch Filaret, the former Bishop of Kiev, they actually asked Zelensky and the rather in early 2023. Remember when in March of this year, when the lease was actually running out, and they, you know, they had time to. They were told, uh, you know, if you don't move out by the end of March, we're going to start kicking you out, force, forcing you out. Allegedly, Epiphany and Filaret reached out to the Ukrainian government officials and Zelensky personally and asked them not to use force. And they said this will, this will be ugly because, look, these guys may, may be schismatics and heretics, but they still have to put on that Christian face of, well, well, let's be kind and let's be peaceful. So, allegedly, Epiphany and Filaret were actually responsible for that, that lull in the persecutions which we saw. It wasn't Anufereen, it wasn't the other bishops, it wasn't even uh, Bishop Paul and some of the other persecuted bishops. They were they were sent to prisons or sent put on house arrest, right? But the actual, why we saw the police not raid the monastery in March, April this year was because the schismatics asked the government specifically for that. And I think the favour has finally kind of faded. This This two-month sort of lull period, it's ended. And now Zelensky and the other demons in charge, they actually want to perhaps put the pressure on again. And in fact, it could also be promoted and of course, are, you know, in their heads they could they could be motivated by the fact that this counter the counter offensive is not working right. The counter offensive is not achieving any sort of goals. Their psyop with the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant has uh, officially been annulled by the 72 hours or 96 hours or however you know they said in 48 hours the Russians are going to blow it up. It'll be a Chernobyl 2.0. It never happened. Uh, the whole dam explosion turned out to be an entire psyop, or nobody really knows who blew the dam up, but most likely Ukrainians just tried to. Yeah, the Ukrainian military tried on the other side. These things, their plans are not working. So they could be trying to increase the anti and increase the agitation of the you know try to frustrate the Russian Orthodox people on on, on the opposing side by again attacking the monastery in a very sort of authoritative way. Like we're going to send officers to remove these you know these uh, essentially squatters who are squatting on this particular real estate, which is the Kiev-Pechersk Lavra. Or even you know, remember the relic conversation. How they said, well. The relics are, that um, they belong to all the people of Ukraine. They bring up these democratic libtard talking points in order to, again, very similar to the Bolsheviks and the communists, to, in order to legitimize the fact that these Orthodox monks who are legitimately, this is technically their land, even if on paper it belongs to the state of Ukraine, which is why a good friend of mine said that the only way for this charade to end, because mind you, the Pachayev Lavra will have the same issue. On paper, the Pachay of Lavra does not belong to the abbot, does not belong to Metropolitan Onufri, it belongs to the state of Ukraine. And it's being leased or freely given for a period of time to the church. The church is borrowing the monastery from the government of Ukraine. So this is like very simplistic, but my friend said, look, the only way this nightmare can end is if Russia annexes and occupies all of Ukraine and forces, uh, you know, actual, you can say privatization of church property will have to take place again. Right? And, and again, this is really far, looking very far into the future, but the problem with Ukraine at the moment, what we're seeing, the police actually hitting the monks and taking, the, taking people, actually protesting the government, seizing the Lavra, uh, taking them away, um, you know, all the church processions being interrupted. This is part and parcel of Zelensky, the Ukrainian plan, and it's not surprising. It's incredibly sad, but it is not surprising, and we're probably going to see a lot more atrocities soon.
0: Well, and it seems that, like you said, if it was the schismatics that realized, for optics purposes, they were only ginning up support for the canonical church. It seems that now, before this wave of, you know, they've the authorities have sealed the residences of Metropolitan Onufri, sealed off other buildings within the, you know, the Kiev Caves, the Kiev Pechersk Lavra, and it seems that now, before they did that, you know, Dumenko made sure that he's like, look, you better go get the get permission from uh, the big man himself, you know, Patriarch Bartholomew, before we do any of this, so that. So the more people can think that, you know, we're doing this for for actual canonical reasons and it's not just uh you know, it's not just this cultural sort of crackdown that we've been doing on anything we deem at all Russian. But I mean we've seen the Belarusian Synod has condemned this and issued statements in support of it. We've seen the Bishop of Montenegro come out and said we haven't seen this level of persecution since the Bolsheviks. So, you know, pan Orthodoxy is definitely realizing what's going on. The only people looking the other way is, you know, Greece constantinople alexandria the majority of cyprus and you know maybe one or two other random characters but besides that everybody else sees what's really going on here and i can't i'm sure the macedonians are realizing it pretty quickly as well but what we also saw was uh like we had said with uh meeting with erdogan was erdogan said that it's time for ukraine to join nato which was uh Kind of strange, considering that they're hand wringing about Sweden joining NATO over random PKK stuff and Quran burnings, whereas you know the Ukraine, which has an active you know conflict going on within its borders, should just be you know allowed in right now, I guess. And again, do you do you think that this is because the summit's just coming up and he wants to seem like a NATO ally, and he won't talk about it as much once that's up, or do you think that do you think that Erdogan really does have no interest in actually you know having any kind of neutrality in all of this?
1: I mean international relations as a as a as a sort of branch of political science in general is just filled to the brim with hypocrisy and people being double faced and lies and you know, the diplomacy is masked in in lies and deceit. It is very devilish, right, yeah, to begin with. And of course, war seems to be the really war seems to be the honest solution to a lot of a lot of these problems, which seems uh you know may, may seem slightly callous, but nevertheless, well, Erdogan actually is the biggest hypocrite because well, what what have we seen in Ukraine since the conflict began, or even since twenty fourteen? We've seen these active weird Banderite uh, neo Nazi types essentially dip dip AK forty seven. Uh, 762 millimeter bullets into pig fat and like wrapping him in bacon and then saying look we're gonna like you know, maybe even I think was it actively burning Qurans or at least uh, you know Bibles Qur'an's, things of this nature in order to agitate the uh, Ahmad Battalion and other uh, Chechen participants of the Russian army who make up like less than 1% of the Russian military, anyway, right? So, but you know, well, the Ukrainians don't care, they, they're just you know, they're just uh, active extremists who care about Bandera and whatever other weird, uh, fake ideology they follow. But, nevertheless, Erdogan doesn't seem to be what's worse burning in Quran in front of the embassy or dipping bullets in pig fat. Again, this debate will not happen because simply the pig fat angle of the whole Azov battalion, who for some reason Turkey somehow facilitates a trade of prisoners for, well, again, it's just, it's mind-boggling, right? Because when, when you have all of this in front of you on paper, or you kind of put it together into a diagram, it does not make sense. Well, that's because politics is incredibly deceitful. Erdogan is showing us that, hey, you could have these two particular points of view, and they can be entirely contradictory as long as, I guess, Turkey and him as the leader of Turkey actually achieve something for their own sovereignty, and they do get some sort of benefits out of it. It's all about it's all very utilitarian, very mean and crude, secular, very secular mindset, despite him being a Sunni Muslim. Uh, I'm not sure what and you know. It it all adds up as well. Like let's not uh, we we see this with uh remember October last year, Abramovich, who was the second richest man in Israel, we speak about him very much in depth on A for episode ten and eleven, if you guys want to check that out. Um Really deep dive on exactly them boys and how they run things, business in Ukraine and Russia. But Abramovich took Azov Battalion neo Nazis who, well, they hate, they hate, uh, you know, they hate them boys, they hate everybody, allegedly on paper at least. They're supporters of Bandera, supporters of neo Nazis. Takes them on his private yacht, feeds them tiramisu in October 22, and of course facilitates the trade of Azov Battalion prisoners with, uh with russia in in turkey and turkey being adjacent and of course he's floating on his yacht in the black sea and doesn't get harassed by the turkish navy this is wild wild hypocrisy right these people do not have uh any sort of strong ideology i mean their strong ideology is the this realpolitik idea of well the sovereignty of my country it's sort of you know patriotism which i guess in and of itself is not a bad thing but in terms of it seems that religion is really really pushed back to the you know kind of to the back end of uh, what matters in both in Russia, Ukraine and in Turkey as well. We don't really see this, you know Erdogan's not building a caliphate like he, he is not, but he may sometimes pretend like during the election period where he's bowing in front of you know nevertheless, I think this fact needs to be considered so Erdogan officially is is this sort of shape-shifting politician that that you know we for some reason were deceived that he you know we believed for a long time, not just us, but you know, the general public was believed that he was this realpolitik, honest guy who would kind of give you his opinion. But at this point, uh, I think we, it's revealed that look, this guy actually does what's best for him, his party,
0: and Turkey, not the rest of the world, not truth. Yeah, I think what we're seeing with with the future of of NATO and the future of of Zelensky and the people that are that are all supporting all of that, and again the. The the Azov stuff, it's really more of a big deal almost because of the way that the Russians have defined this conflict, right? They put so much emphasis on denazification, which at this point I think has run its course as far as effective propaganda is concerned. But its only utility is its breadth. Like, it can mean anything, right? Like, as long as there are perceived Nazis within the Ukrainian military, Russia, I guess, has a casus belli to, to fight against them, which... I don't think that's a good reason to fight the Ukrainian government. I think there's other reasons to fight against the Ukrainian government. But that being said, if that's going to be your whole thing, and you had this whole deal with Turkey to not have the Nazis go back there and terrorize the people, supposedly, and they're just going to be back there, like, well, you're going to have to, like, make some kind of statement to Turkey or else you have to have some deal worked out behind the scenes, you know? I don't really know. And at the same time as well, like, obviously Turkey just saying, you, Turkey coming out and suddenly being more, You know, pro Ukraine and NATO than even the US is, is probably actually a sign that, you know, Ukraine isn't actually about to join NATO, which no one expected, obviously. Like, I don't think anyone was expecting that this Vilnius meeting is going to secretly be a big reveal and we're just letting Ukraine into NATO now. And then we just, uh, and it's like a surprise attack, Article 5 activated. But as usual, you know, Zelensky's going around getting uh, approval from everywhere before, you know, he does or says anything. Just kind of, I mean, as far as going to slightly back to the church stuff, I mean, wasn't this supposed to be a, with uh, Zelensky meeting the EP, wasn't this supposed to be like a tomos of autocephaly? Like, why does he need to meet with the EP to decide what to do with the monasteries under the OCU? Doesn't Domenko have, you know, authority over his metropolia?
1: Well, I think that Domenko is, is I think, scared off by the fact that, well, if you if you look at all the, any interviews with uh Smith Bolton epiphany, he really gives off this like slow boy, like very soft spoken take. Like, that's his image. It's not a, even though he may look somewhat tough and he has this, you know, black mustache and whatnot, he actually is very soft spoken. So, he doesn't give off this like, I'm a tough guy with a deep voice type of, uh, he's a lot less charismatic than Enufri and a lot less charismatic than Patriarch Kirill. So, he does need to kind of kill them with kindness, so to speak. Uh, and this is what, and so he really wants to legitimize his particular autocephalist church i'm almost considering that perhaps he actually believes that he is the metropolitan of kiev like the the larp has gotten to his head and he actually thinks that hey through economy or through some sort of backdoor consideration i am the legitimate bishop and he actually thinks he has grace etc like it's just crazy but yeah maybe he actually believes that it's the the deception the prelis has gotten uh, to his head but nevertheless it seems to have gotten to To the unfortunate, uh, the unfortunate and blessed head of Patriarch Bartholomew, the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople, as well, meeting at least he believes that he could grant uh, Stavropigia to the Kiev Pechersk lover, which is, I mean, the Stavropigial status would essentially mean that the monastery in Kiev Pechersk is essentially like an island belonging to the EP, but it has full autonomy, so it doesn't actually, a Stavropigial monastery does not require a, a bishop to be over it. It's kind of like, a church colony, so to speak. It's almost like what Rokor was to the Russian Orthodox Church. It's this, this interesting form of autonomy which can be granted to a monastery that's maybe somewhere on an island, like somewhere in Alaska, in relation to the Russian Orthodox Church. So you can't actually send a bishop or priest there, but you have uh, maybe a few priests there who serves liturgies, but technically they're not under any bishops. It's this really interesting form of church governance, which it seems that it has been a long time since Stavropigia, the status was granted to any monastery, at least in my. In my lifetime, I don't recall any particular, you know, granting of such a status. But nevertheless, we see the EP, he's like, hey, I know a solution. Let's not end the schism. Let's perpetuate it and uh, let's push it further and let's make it a bit more complex by, yeah, going through of kicking out Manufri and all these other bishops and monks and priests who have nothing to do with the legitimacy and the ecumenical patriarch and the and the world orthodoxy, right, the, the, the Council of uh, Crete, etc." cetera. And let's uh, actually make the Kiev pechersk Lavra an official monastery belonging to us. Again, it also brings around this question, Conrad, of, and I think it's kind of an answer to the Metropolitan, uh, you know, the false Metropolitan Epiphany, and is he actually under the EP, or is the Ukrainian Orthodox Church autocephalous, or is it autonomous, is it a branch of the Ecumenical Patriarchate? I think that's kind of, the, the Thomas of autocephaly was given, but uh, if... If Ukraine is autocephalous, why is there a Stavropigil monastery belonging to the EP in the center of its capital? Again, this is strange, and and honestly, the fact that none of this makes sense is part of its demonic, like, (laughs) demonic activity is usually chaotic, and you cannot make sense of it, similar to how, well, you look at uh, early Soviet history, and you try to make sense of which Bolsheviks were friends and which were enemies, and then they all end up killing each other anyway in the 1930s, it's because, well... To be to participate in demonic heretical actions is to kind of lose the logos, lose logic, lose this idea, lose kind of God's grace, and of course you end up uh, succumbing to madness, which is what's happening at the moment. Where you have a false patriarch, you have an, a metropolitan, so you have a false patriarch of Kiev, you have a false metropolitan of Kiev, you have a metropolitan Anufriy who hasn't been who hasn't committed any canonical crime crime at all in Ukraine, so he's not, he cannot be forcefully, uh you cannot take you cannot defrock him. If you suspend him from serving as the Ecumenical Patriarch, you cannot uh, suspend him forever, since church suspensions need to have an end date. They cannot there cannot be a permanent suspension. There, there could be a the, for the frocking, right? But there couldn't there can't be a permanent suspension. So, but which nobody has given Anufri. So Metropolitan Anufri is in this gray area. All of this is very again very chaotic. It's very confusing to non-church people, but and again even confusing to us Orthodox Christians who are within the church or, or have been for many many years. This is very unprecedented, and you know, naturally meeting with the the head them the head of like the, at least the token them boy in in the Fanar, in that particular holy place, the you know that held on to orthodoxy during the enslavement of the Balkans to the Ottoman Empire, and there's so many saints who actually sat in the Fanar seat and martyrs and good Greek bishops and priests and lay people who actually supported that Fanar district for many years, right, for many centuries during Turkish Ottoman occupation of Greece that to have this particular character of the big nose enter the st george's church and you know would just be there and be held in such high regard despite not being an orthodox christian i understand putin attending mount Athos and actually standing you know in in, this, in in the particular imperial seat that makes sense because well putin by all intents and purposes is a practicing christian zelensky is not so it's, it's this LARP, it's very disrespectful, not just to us, but also to, I suppose, the whole Greek community, and hopefully the Greek church and some bishops will speak out against this. Again, the, I'm not even going to mention the Macedonian church and how disrespectful it was treating that bishop as if he was a regular deacon or a regular, like, psalm reader or something like that. That was very bizarre, not giving him... And the fact, the fact of the matter is, Zelensky took... The, notice, the headline was Zelensky. Nobody cared that the fact... Of a, a new Orthodox, newly reunited bishop has visited the Fenar. Right, that wasn't important. It was the fact that Zelensky was there, a member of them boys, who isn't even Orthodox. So the whole the whole spotlight was taken away from the Macedonian, uh, the Bishop of Macedonians of Orchid. Actually, meant you know being there with the Ecumenical Patriarch together. It's 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 quite uh, it's quite amusing. And in fact, uh, I don't think there'll be any good end to any of this interaction. And the EPs, yeah, again. For well, those of you saying that well the schism hopefully it ends and maybe there'll be common sense this what we just saw in the last few days proves that common sense is not reaching the ears and and the minds of some of these leaderships of you know, these leaders of the ecumenical patriarchate and some of the Greek bishops it seems like they have their own outline they have their own biases and idea of the status quo and they're following along with it this is the unfortunate reality we
0: live in I mean Zelensky couldn't even stop his like pajama camo larp for like one day to meet you know the supposed the leader of orthodoxy as all the headlines call him you know the leader of world orthodoxy the head of orthodoxy so the whole you know the the ep as the pope talking points have completely infiltrated like western media so i guess if you you know uphold the synodal model of the ortho, of orthodox ecclesiology or a russian shill i guess in the eyes of In the eyes of the west you know i mean mike pompeo he's not running for president anymore but he you know one of his main talking points he was proud of having brought you know religious freedom to ukraine so uh this in the eyes of uh in the eyes of zog the uh everything's going great for religious for the orthodox people in in ukraine but unless you have anything else you want to say about Vilnius, i mean i guess sweden i think that's probably what's going to happen i wouldn't be surprised if sweden gets let in And that's not the end of the, I mean, Sweden, you know, they have a big military industrial complex, so it's not good. But, you know, I mean, I don't think anyone's worried about Sweden invading Russia or, or, you know, being a starting point for some kind of crazy new iteration of Operation Barbarossa, but, you know, somehow super cringe. And I think the, uh, and I guess if you don't have anything else to say about that, we can move on to Greece and the elections and the latest stuff going on there.
1: Yeah, I think just in general, like it, it just gives another it throws the ball back in the Russian in the Kremlin's court. They do have to react to this in some way. If you recall Finland entering NATO didn't really spark big outrage, at least in, in Russia. And even if there was outrage, it only lasted a couple of days. Didn't really make any big stories, even though that would have shaken the Soviet Union to its core, right? Or even, I mean, the post Soviet Union, say the early Putin years, that would not have been possible. Finland would never have entered. I mean, that's just absolutely insane. Sweden entering is almost like the cherry on top of the cake. Again, similar to the Baltic states, which are essentially surrounding Kaliningrad of former Konigsberg and Prussia and, um, you know, essentially the Russian St. Petersburg northwestern area. Uh, this is all very problematic for future geopolitical conflicts and maybe tensions again uh you know Sweden joining will probably not garner a reaction from Russia like a proper a proper you know some some strong some strong moves will not be made, but at least hopefully rhetorically Putin and his colleagues could at least come out with some sort of denunciation of this and the fact that hey let's put our foot down let's maybe escalate the situation in Ukraine as the honest answer to Ukraine actually promoting this uh Not Ukraine, but NATO in itself promoting this Ukrainian conflict and kind of really pushing eastwards, as they said, uh, as they promised and they said they wouldn't. It's time to hold them accountable.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously there's the... the, Everyone, people have been posting jokes like, you know, what if... uh... You know, what if Russia just, you know, from Belarus and Kaliningrad just, you know, takes Lithuania during the Vilnius conference? You know, I mean, I think that's a good idea. But, I mean, maybe some of those questions, those are the kind of questions that will probably also come up, right? Like Kaliningrad, again, like none of it will probably happen, right? But the possibility of Kaliningrad blockades from the sea and the land, the future of the Crimea situation and whether or not, I mean that that may be something that comes out of it. It's like, dude, maybe they lay out some of the things they need to. Maybe some reality checks they want to hit Ukraine with. Like, maybe they re, maybe they finally are like, look, we need to tell Zelensky man that uh, Crimea is not coming back because, I mean, this whole cluster munitions thing, Biden's like apologizing in advance for giving the cluster munitions because he knows it's bad optics they're not they're not really good. the cluster munitions themselves don't provide any operational advantage it's just because they're i guess we're running out of more conventional shells to send them so all of the stuff is becoming more and more feeble to the point where again what we're all hoping for is that Russia actually plans to at least at least you know push to its claimed territorial ends once some of these you know these trickle of supplies start to prove that they're they're not doing anything to change the game and the and the actual casualties have been have been taken and can't be replaced. And then Russia starts to slowly but surely push or negotiate while pushing or negotiate for more land that they haven't already taken to be taken peacefully. Not, you know, not doing the like, let's chill or let's retreat now that we think we've all, we've all had enough of this and are tired and ready to go home. But that's all of that. We're going to keep it going. You know, maybe we'll do a live stream if some crazy stuff starts happening around the time of the summit itself. But to head a little bit, we talked about the Balkans. We talked about that, you know, a little bit south. Greece. Had big elections, and the center-right party, New Democracy, they won. They won big. The 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 socialists, the leftists, have totally imploded. Like their leader has resigned. It's 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 all it's all bad for them. And not only did New Democracy look, there's, I don't really have anything good to say about New Democracy. The head, you know, the Mitsotakis, the who's been the prime minister of of Greece this whole time, who's going to be it again. He's already said now they're going to push for gay marriage. You know, he's totally like a like center-right. Said like. In some ways, Syriza is actually better because I think they have a more, they're less aligned with some of the Western foreign policy stuff. But regardless, they won. It's definitely like left liberal, like, you know, leftism and like, you know, communism, socialism stuff isn't necessarily super popular right now in Greece. But I guess the only white pill amongst, from that election was the victory of two parties in particular. In our favor, the victory party, the Niki party, which is the Orthodox ultranationalist Party. And there's also the Spartans Party, which is the party that was endorsed by Ilias Cassidiaris, who, for those who don't know, was the former leader of the Golden Dawn, which was the primary, quote-unquote, far-right party in Greece that got dismantled and made illegal after Cassidiaris and other people were, uh, I guess, deemed to have been part of a criminal gang that was fighting migrants and leftists and violently attacking them. And there was some murder involved, whatever. It was definitely a... Sure, they might have been involved in some bad stuff, but the handling of it and the arrest of the leadership was definitely Greece overstepping its boundaries and totally shutting down a, a nationalist voice. But the Spartans party, who are you know more ethno-nationalists, they have 13 seats in the Greek parliament of 300, and Niki, the Orthodox party, which explicitly is, is very anti-vaccine, anti-LGBT, you know, they rose up in the midst of the anti-church COVID stuff in a lot of ways, they're going to have 10 seats. So that's 23 you know, seats from these, uh, again, the the Niki Orthodox party is also pretty ultra-nationalist focused, and they have the support of monks and, you know, priests that did a good job standing up against some of this stuff, so, you know, there is another, pre- finally, a pre- after the banning of Golden Dawn, you know, some some actual right-wing people have made it back into Parliament, you know, maybe they can, perhaps we'll get some good speeches, but regardless, I don't expect a big, huge change on anything actually happening in Greece, Of course, the gay marriage thing is big. We can maybe expect some protests. I I hope that the bishops can mobilize, you know, like they did in Montenegro. I hope that the Greek bishops can mobilize Christians against this to the point where, look, unfortunately, it seems that 56% of Greeks do support gay marriage, 40% against. I think you can raise the number against all the way up to, you know, where it's, you know, 55-45, basically. But I don't know if, if maybe if enough people can mobilize, it would be enough to at least put it off for now. I mean, he's a center, right? person he can maybe be swayed by you know i mean the, the the prime minister of greece takes an oath on like the gospels with the with the archbishop of athens present i mean this is someone who shouldn't be even considering any of this stuff
1: yeah that's right but i think this is one of the symptoms of having a secular i guess liberal based democracy in in a majority christian country is that slowly but surely this presence of and this is where I guess things factors such as Freemasons and these covert semi Christian organizations. Well I'm semi Christian, I mean Christians can join apparently Freemasonic lodges and still remain loyal to their church. At least this was the site thrown into the uh thrown into the our sort of you know, our history before. But nevertheless, uh, it does it does infiltrate the minds of Orthodox pro politicians and give them this idea that hey you guys can actually compromise and we don't necessarily need to vote against gay marriage or do any of this really stressful upsetting stuff that may give you bad optics in say world politics or even some of your future business prospects you could just vote kind of center right you don't really need to vote for really hardline orthodox positions and your career could be great you could still get away with uh, min- minimal you know involvement and investment in in that sort of orthodox uh, w- worldview type of like far right uh, p- p- policies. You don't have to join the Black Hundreds like they did in the Russian Empire right before the revolution. You know where bishops would join, like Saint John of Kronstadt and uh, Saint Vlad- Vladimir Bol- Bogolyubsky and uh, Saint Andronicus of Perm. They would join openly the Black Hundreds and support the uh, you know the far right wing uh, parties of the Russian Empire, which were monarchistic. And you know no one would really argue that there was no real argument. You could say you couldn't join the libs and say. I'm I'm more orthodox than you are when there are openly bishops and priests as members of the most far right wing party that supports uh, Tsar Nicholas II. So that was the stance back then. Again, politics in the 21st century is very deceiving in this in this matter. You can be a you know and you could attend church. And look, it's like, well, the, the Archbishop of Athens is communing him personally. He must be an Orthodox guy. Let me vote for him. What about that far-right party? Well, don't worry about that. I I did see the Archbishop of Athens openly speak to Mithyxarchus or appear at some political um, you know dinner with him. So he must be close to the church. Regardless, people don't look at the policies, right, Conrad? They look at the PR, the sort of front end, which is why no right-wing party has ever succeeded in Russia. Notice Russia well besides the fact that russia has openly banned orthodox parties parties cannot have religious affiliations i believe or not really strong no real strong ideal, uh, ideological affiliations besides some vague you know mentions of communism like the kprf but uh that's one of the issues of russian politics is that no party besides united russia could have this um you know this real, even even united russia itself doesn't even base itself on orthodoxy it's kind of just the yeah we're center right and because there's no one else to appeal to. The bishops and the priests, the clergymen, they put they cooperate with the politicians in charge and it gives this interesting, this interesting view to the general public who watch TV and they see people like with Medvedev, the prime minister at the time, uh, you know, speaking to a bishop and they say, well, he must be super Orthodox and there's no alternatives. They don't realize the fact that alternatives are illegal and the fact that, and nobody even thinks about voting for Zhirinovsky because Zhirinovsky doesn't openly go to church or at least he doesn't go to church on camera. Right, and it's all about the appearance of orthodoxy rather than the actual policies. Which is why it's a good thing that clergymen are being openly invited to some of these political political parties, or at least they're participating in politics. I know it sounds somewhat uh, secular and maybe a bit bizarre that I want me personally, or you know, a, a lot of orthodox Christians who know history, they realize that participation of clergy in political parties in these in this fallen world that we live in is key to success. I I cannot emphasize this enough. It's one of the reasons why, in the Russian Empire, the Duma got away with so much degeneracy is because they they ended up kicking a lot of the clergymen out of the parliament, and the clergymen weren't there to actually do like a quick heresy check on a lot of these lib, uh, even right wing politicians who were spouting absolutely anti you know anti Russian, anti Orthodox rhetoric and had these weird ideas like separation of church and state. This can't be allowed to, you know, this is has been happening in Greece for 30 years, which is why sodomy is legal, which is why homosexuality is decriminalized. LGBTQ parades have already taken place in Athens and they have these weird pagan festivals. It's, it's very bizarre. And now gay marriage is openly on the table. And the only way to actually openly counteract this is not from a secular perspective. It's not to take up a, a Jordan Peterson-esque critique. It's not to, you know, defeat them in the uh in the sort of the realm of the realm of free ideas or whatever, they invite them to Joe Rogan for a debate. No. It's it's actually protest and have clergy present at the protest and have have it shown on the camera, have it shown on the news, on social media, on telegram, and to show the people that, hey, the church actually does not support these policies. They need to stop.
0: I mean, just like what we saw in Georgia, right? I mean, every year, you know, it's back Tbilisi Pride, you know, everyone's favorite NGO, you know, really full of full of Germans and Ukrainians and Poles that come to Georgia for a few homosexual Georgians to, you know, flaunt the streets and offend Georgia and show everyone that see, see Georgia, you know, they hate the Russians, they're a good colony like the rest of us. But no, the Georgians have proven, how do we handle this? Direct action. They mobilized, you know, hundreds of clergy were part of the protest, and they just took up all the space. They went to the park and completely took it over. You know, they pushed the protesters back, they... In the years past, they'd already stormed the actual offices and, you know, destroyed them and taken down all the disgusting sodomite, you know, paraphernalia. And it, it's just not allowed to happen. The The organizers of the rally had to post immediately on Facebook within moments of the scheduled actual, you know, event starting, don't come, you know, it's been completely overrun. So, you know, that nonsense just didn't happen. And unfortunately, you know, Greece being in insane amounts of debt, a member of the EU and... Unfortunately, this tourist, depend extremely tourist-heavy, you know, country democracy that you know shifted away from its monarchy and military junta is, you know, it's it's become this place where so many of the people are just tolerant of these cosmopolitan, international, degenerate lifestyles, and it doesn't help that their you know leader, the Ecumenical Patriarch, you know, Archbishop Ieronymos, isn't quite as bad, but he you know follows the leader, is of course united himself against world orthodoxy which is still ultimately a force against the antichrist and against globalism but the ecumenical patriarch and leader of the greek orthodox world along with unfortunately the majority of his his flock his bishop flock beneath him again with the exceptions of those we'd love to discuss like metropolitan neophytos metropolitan athanasios metropolitan nikiforos you know metropolitan uh, nectarios of agina and some of these other uh, greek bishops that have you know heroically stood up but We see that, you know, Greece is, you know, they can, they can even, even in their orthodoxy, they could probably still, some of them, I don't think that many of the pious ones feel this way, but I'm sure there are some people that feel perfectly fine being, you know, a proud Greek Orthodox person that supports Ukraine, that supports Dumenko, that supports Zelensky, and that, you know, thinks the Pope is cool and that, you know, the Russians, they need to chill out already, right? Like, you know, you can picture this kind of normy attitude among a, among a more liberal or cosmopolitan-minded Greek person. And that's, that's why we get stuff like this. And, of course, there will always be, uh, like Greeks, you know, you've, if you've met Greeks, you know, they're the most chauvinistic people ever, so there will always be a, a nationalist undercurrent. It's just that their bureaucracy with its, at the behest of their, you know, NATO-EU lackeys will have to always, they've been told to obviously put a damper on anything that would resemble, you know, a, a civilizational pushback against against Zog or against the presences and tentacles of Zog that exist in Greece. So, you know, because if that arose, right, it would be, you know, they already have Mount Athos. It's this, you know, it's the last holdout of the Byzantine empire. It would be that, you know, it would be another manifestation of the actual antidote to our problem, right. In any kind of, at least in any kind of political sense. But of course, you know, the question with all of this that the biggest geopolitical question with Greece and elections and leaders has to do with Turkey. And of course, you know, the cent- like, everyone in Greece is kind of basically, they all have the same perspective, just like we talk with David, everyone in Turkey, you know, they all have the same opinions on Greece, everyone in Greece has the same opinions on Turkey, it's we're just gonna, you know, obviously, no one's going to declare war, because both are, are held back by NATO, of which they're both part of, but they just, you know, they they all admit that they're just going to take whatever they can get, Greece is going to keep militarizing the islands, Turkey is going to keep exploiting these mineral exploration rights and claiming they find big pockets that they're going to exploit and then claim that Greece is, you know, being bellicose with their militarization of the islands, et cetera, et cetera.
1: And, I mean, do they expect sympathy when, say, in 2020... uh... Amidst COVID there are these hardcore sanctions against certain bishops like Seraphim of Caifiru who is sent to prison for not, you know, participating in the the the, the vaccine, the, the masking, the closing down of churches, right? Which was which was taking place in, in the Greek Archdiocese. And there are these uh, huge violations which took place and we don't necessarily forget them. And of course, amidst COVID, Erdogan decides to turn the Agia Sophia, the former the former cathedral of Constantinople, into essentially a mosque again, converting it from from a museum into a mosque, and this apparently upsets a lot of people. But what what else do you expect, frankly, after after all the weird degeneracy and the weird double talk and hypocrisy that's been happening for so long? And in fact, just the, the Greek Church is supporting the schism. Surely this doesn't this doesn't please God in any way. You know, this participation in in world affairs and with the world and the world being this sinful, passionate, New World Order type construction, you know, working together with these demon worshippers from overseas, inviting them into your midst as well, not just for proselytization and to evangelize to them. I'm sure, do you think anybody has given Zelensky a little booklet on orthodoxy or a catechesis, Conrad? I honestly don't believe so. I think he, (laughs) I think he actually attended and nobody even, I don't think a single bishop in, and this is a strong statement but I don't think a single clergyman in 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 Istanbul in the fanar actually tried to at least tell ask you know ask them, say hey how's your catechesis going are you interested in orthodoxy are you do you maybe want to convert because Orthodox Judaism is uh you know a religion of the devil it's essentially just you know very ancient pagan worship um you know it's you know do you think anybody tried to evangelize them no that's the short answer. And so when these negative things happen, like the Hagia Sophia being converted to a mosque, and you know, which offends all of us, of course, but Hagia Sophia has been desecrated 500 years ago. You cannot hold a liturgy there anymore. It, it is an unclean place as a museum and a mosque. These two things are, in my mind, synonymous and equivalent. Both things are offensive to the Orthodox person. It does not matter if Erdogan switches it between a mosque or a museum, or even if it becomes a temple for Baal. It's, it's, all, it's all the same so whether well, you know, museums are essentially secular temples anyway to scientism so let's put a full stop there but uh nevertheless this factor of you know these uh, these greek hierarchs you know so sort of siding with this worldly opinion of of their of their leaders is i think greatly offensive what you because you mentioned the greek people are incredibly nationalistic and right wing so there is this underlying current which i think these globalists and these liberal politicians within Greece and within I guess the the finar, these in influencers essentially you could call them are trying to control this right because there is this undercurrent of strong orthodox resistance to atheist communism to I think even the third Reich itself you know had some trouble invading Greece like the Greek people have fought back against Ottoman Turks for centuries and how do you control this strong people and this really passionate orthodox culture which could not be defeated after years of slavery, centuries of slavery, is, well, you you infiltrate it, you control it from the inside. Your LARP is orthodox, your LARP is lukewarm, you, that, you know, if you cannot beat them, you join them, so to speak. That's what we're seeing here. Like, this is an open example. It's similar to what the communists did in Russia as well. They couldn't defeat the church, so they chose to, hey, you know, Dumb it down to a large extent. Hey, we're not going to t- teach orthodoxy in schools, but bishops are still allowed to you know exist in a very light and sort of light sense, as long as no sermons are given against you know uh, against the Soviet state. You guys are allowed to still remain during the Khrushchev Brezhnev years and late Stalin years. It's very similar to what we see in Greece. It's like yeah, the the church can have a presence, and maybe we'll even every time a pride parade we'll try to pass one through the through the through the city. But you know, even if a pogrom happens, we'll just try again next year. Until the people succumb slowly to degeneracy, and you know this is a testament to the Greek people that they they have remained strong in their orthodoxy despite corrupt leadership both inside the church. And I don't mean this. I don't mean to say the church is without grace because even a bishop who you know in his mind is a heretic and he thinks heretical way, the ideas as he's performing the liturgy and he's blessing the sacraments, his sacraments are still valid, right? So, as long as the bishops and the priests are all within the church, God works for these sinful people in order to bring his grace to us uh, and to the Greek people, you know, in and of themselves. So, I think that's the consideration is that, look, the Greek people still have life in them. They still have this cultural strength and this centuries of resilience built up. And Mount Athos is the beacon as well. That is the – the Mount Athos is the lamppost in, 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 this, in this darkness, which kind of – you know, it's the lighthouse which guides them. To, you know, kind of checks and also, you know, gives them an accountability check on occasion. Like St. Paisios, did he say any liberal weird stuff? No, he actually named them. Like, he openly named certain people and certain groups. And all most of these elders are incredibly based. You get to Mount Alphos, they're just, like, straight up spitting game. Like, there's, there's no... There's no disclaimers, there's no censorship and no filtration. So Mount Athos these monasteries they keep
0: on the, majority mm-hmm. the, the majority of the majority of the Athanite monasteries and abbots were correct on the whole COVID thing and mm-hmm. there's a direct correlation with the ones that were the most correct on that have also been the most staunch on they won't even not only will they not welcome the Ukrainian schismatics to the monasteries, they won't even welcome those that con- the other Athenites that concelebrated with them in the past, they won't let them concelebrate now at their monasteries. So, you know, these guys don't mess around.
1: Yeah, that's right. So there is that to consider as well. We would never have ever said on on our podcast or anywhere that the Greek church has fallen. That's not the case. It's simply going through a very interesting time and a different sort of occupation. This isn't the Ottoman Empire. This is the liberal NATO imperial hegemony, which has taken over Greece. Greece is completely indebted. It is not economically free. It's not financially free. There is a new master in this house. And it's about, again, the devil's in the details. It's about pretending, you know, LARPing that, oh, Greece Greece is sovereign. It's not sovereign. There is no sovereignty in Greece right now. There is this appearance of sovereignty. The politicians are controlled by either Masonic lodges, membership in in the EU, these economic deals that they write down, and of course they all pretend to be Orthodox, similar to how Kerensky, also while being a, a leader of the Grand Lodge of the Peoples of Russia, attended the Russian Orthodox Council, which elected Saint Tikhon as Patriarch, as a you know privileged guest. So there were Freemasons present present in Russia in 1917 18 at the councils. This is this shouldn't surprise anybody. These people they they actually do they have reached a new level of deceit and deception where they actually where they actually pretend to be orthodox uh, you know of course they they never speak about it in detail which is how you kind of find out exactly what their intentions are. They never go into details. They kind of just pretend on the outside and yeah, as soon as you try and grasp any sort of depth of detail or their position on certain subjects in the world today, they, they usually uh, tap out pretty quick and you can usually see right through their um, deceitful natures. Of course, the devil is not, uh, is not very, is not shrewd in that account. You know, you could, when the saints mention the fact that, you know, dreams are usually deceitful, you can read Saint St. Saint, Saint John of Kronstadt's diary, where he is usually, when, whenever demons harass him in his sleep, they show him actually demonic dreams of, you know, priests and bishops offending him. They show him like images related to orthodoxy in order to attack St. John of Kronstadt's, his, 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 his ego and his personal uh, mental state because they know how to get at you from this angle. But yeah, you know, the devil does pretend to be an angel of light at times. And I think that's what uh, it's up to the Greek people in order to find out who's genuine and who's actually uh, an open deceiver.
0: And again, thankfully for the Greek people, they have been given to myriad of, you know, voices, you know, I've, I'm a solo English, I can speak only English, and I've been, you know, availing myself of the wisdom of some of those who have been speaking directly to the Greek people, begging them for, for repentance and a return to the appreciation of the beautiful deposit of faith they've been given. Of course, I'm talking about, I mean, most explicitly St. Paesios, St. Porfirios, St. Iacovos, you know, people like Elder Athanasios, Mitileneos, Elder Ephraim of Arizona, St. Joseph the Hesychast these people that, you know, shine forth into the 21st century from the 20th and of course, then those were still their disciples that are still alive, right? Like Elder Gabriel of Mount Athos, Metropolitan Ophitos of Morphu, most probably foremost among them. I mean, there's—I uh, can't—I th- can think of almost no one else. Like even, I mean, these. This even rivals the the wisdom, then the the amount of wisdom and elders that the Russians have by definitely by per capita, it's even more. So, you know, for those Greeks that that do that do seek, it is it is very much there for the taking, and you know. I think we're all very envious of that, but we're also very grateful. I mean, as St. Porfirio said, you know, the Internet, which has, you know, we know causes so many problems, me and Dimitri can attest to its frequent demonic nature, but nevertheless has served a beautiful evangelical to, ev- tool to spread the gospel, to spread orthodoxy, and especially in our case as well, to spread some truth amidst extremely deceptive times in the realm of war and geopolitics, and especially where that intersects with, with faith.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, uh, we, of course, pray that uh, Greece will be free from any of this weird presence. And, you know, frankly, I think in terms of news, moving away from all those, I think, upsetting things around, around you know, the Greek peninsula and, you know, just, just that uh, those factors and especially Zelensky's visit to the, e- to, to the EP. I do want to mention Zelensky as he was going through Sofia in Bulgaria, right? There was this particular clip which... Um, we posted on our World One Now Twitter channel where an, an Orthodox Bulgarian priest actually, as Zelensky's uh, you know tr- train of cars was he- heading through the city, you know, to meet with the president of Bulgaria, Zel- uh, this priest jumps out onto the road with a cross and he yells anathema, anathema to Zelensky, anathema, and of course the cops, the the police in Bulgaria detain him, and it it, it just caught, it gave this very powerful image of the bulgarian people as well opposing the presence of this dark this dark puppet of of satan and the antichrist kind of entering their country and that's essentially what clergy need to do openly frankly they have this authority they have this power and they have this uh, sort of otherworldly uh they have this um you know we we of course all have you know the ability to inform people about the non-spiritual world but you know zelensky It is a role of the priest to sort of teach us exactly and protect us, protect their societies and our societies from people such as that. And they need to inform us about their uh, wrongdoings, which is what anathemas are for. It's to show, uh, it's it's essentially show us, Orthodox Christians, who is not part of us, to show that, look, that person is outside the church. Zelensky is anathema because he's not an Orthodox Christian, period. And he doesn't follow all the tenets of the triumph of Orthodoxy, and of course, he doesn't believe in the creed holy nicene creed so there we go so that bulgarian story was quite nice and i think that uh kind of was the cherry cherry on top of the cake in terms of well positive news that came out of church interactions with this character it's like it, it's not all shilling in fact uh, some some clergymen actually stand up openly and uh denounce him for who he is and
0: mm-hmm. i guess before we move on fully from greece i wanted to say i mean elder ephraim metropolitan he just related himself I me mean, elder ephraim said that you know greece has you know slandered its heritage as rolling around in the mud and whatnot and we see this happening now of course we know we've we've spoken about the prophecies we know these things i think are gonna ultimately get better even in places like america you know i mean they saint paisio said you know one day america will be holy so i think i think some of these things you know it does have to get bad before it gets worse right but as far as you know, things maybe not getting worse, moving a little bit northwards in the Balkans. Unless, of course, you have anything you want to say finally about any of that other stuff, Dmitri. But Serbia, Kosovo, Serbska—it's the U.S. You know, they gave an answer, and it seems that they're willing to let a lot more slide than the uh, than the Muslims would like in the region.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm frankly surprised that the United States or you know, has has made this open statement and. You know, it does kind of, the United States is the leader of NATO in, in a way, the fact, and not really the European country. So it does kind of give this vision of, well, the US is going to let Republika Srpska have its own sort of sideline mirror, you know, this kind of secondary judicial system with its own hierarchy. And, you know, they're going to probably institute their own laws and have their local parliaments run run the show without relationship to the, to the greater, you know, parliament of Bosnia Herzegovina. They, well what this essentially means is that essentially Respublika Srpska will have this amazing sort of autocephalous existence within uh, Bosnia. and this is, of course extremely positive, I think generally speaking, because hey, well, if the law enforcement and and the courts will actually ab- obey the leaders of of the Serbian populace from Bosnia- Herzegovina, we can actually uh, you know prosecute certain offenses which you know offend Orthodox Christians specifically, kind of protect your own communities rather than d- depend on the Muslim uh you know muslim judges and muslim you know officers law enforcement. i have nothing against you know people of other religions participating in these structures but you know as the canon said you know trusting orthodox doctors and not those which belong to the you know them boys is is also important so there we do actually differentiate about who in which particular like the the adherence of into a particular religion for example orthodox christianity matters more to us if the judges and the police officers are orthodox and and in fact, we're probably going to see uh, the Serbian people take back some autonomy in these in these particular regions in Bosnia. I think it's it's an amazing, and very peaceful as well. Notice, Conrad, we don't see the riots that we currently see in France or even the Kosovo conflict. Uh, you know, was a lot bloodier a few months ago in terms of you know people actually getting hit and riot police being involved. in Bosnia, but Republic of Serbs, seems to have just taken taken what it wanted without any uh, complaints.
0: Well, I think this raises a few questions about what the end game is. And the question is, is the U.S. overextended to where it doesn't actually feel that it could counter? Again, we recently saw Russia issue some statements. It hadn't issued any statements on some of the recent flare-ups, but it finally said, specifically with Kosovo, you know, the existence of Serbs in Kosovo is being threatened by the actions of the Kirti regime, which a little bit weak in the timing from Russia. This is after, I mean, even the Americans and the EU have sanctioned Kosovo. So it seems to be pretty in vogue to go against albin kurti and his you know albanian chauvinist government but as far as Serbska goes as well i mean like it's the u.s what they decided to do is their their red line is a independence referendum like until Serbska basically says we are leaving the country of bosnia and herzegovina and becoming the weirdest shaped country on the planet we uh that's the only thing that the u.s will intervene for which you know the Srpska is like one or two steps away from that. You know, they're really just kind of nullifying the jurisdiction that the central government in Sarajevo has over over a third of the landmass of the country. And, of course, there's those exclaves that are not part of Srpska on the other side, not at all connected to the rest of Bosnia and Herzegovina, as well as that tiny section in the middle that, like, isn't... I, I don't know if it's Croat or Bosniak, but it is a part that completely separates the two main regions of Srpska, and that'll always be... Uh, you know something that's used against the Serbs, but they'll always say like, "Oh, you're 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 making it difficult to ju- to govern." You know these regions that aren't part of your jurisdiction, yada yada yada. But I guess the other question is: Is this is the U.S. being soft on the Serbian diaspora to either prepare for like a deal with Vučić or something, or to like hope to like assuage Vučić into a more friendly EU position, so as to not have this. Uh, you know, because most Serbs in and in, you know, Serbia proper and in, you know, the occupied former territories are, you know, very much against rapprochement with the West, especially in the midst of what they perceive as oppression by by NATO backed forces and by these countries that are backed up by, you know, the very institutions that are trying to win, I guess, favor in Serbia
1: i think ultimately obviously the main enemy of nato at the moment is the russian federation so if nato could and if nato and the european union actually could obtain a sort of assurance from Serbia for us from you know certain pro-serbian forces and from Republika Srpska, bosnia as well as kosovo if they can receive assurance that hey when if if the war escalates in ukraine if if you guys could just at least stay on the sideline and not participate we will give you all these assurances and I guess freedoms and things that you weren't granted before. They could have. They could be, in fact, baiting them and bribing them with these uh, particular statements and kind of actions of goodwill. Uh, definitely, uh, absolutely. And Vucic has shown in the past that he's, you know, not just the cock of Kosovo. Vucic is the uh, the sort of again similar to Erdogan, like a much weaker version. He's willing to turn his back on Russia and is willing to actually openly. State. I mean, Vucic, honestly, Vucic has shown himself to have a big mouth over the last year. Like, he stated really, like, essentially, he's almost like a Telegram commenter. It's like a tweeter. He just says, well, Russia's not doing good. Now Ukraine's not doing good. recently said, the counteroffensive is not doing great. Uh, yeah, by the way, Zelensky, you're not doing great. Even though Serbia has openly sent at least humanitarian aid to Ukraine. So. It has, you know, somewhat supported the Ukrainian regime in that regard. Not not that I think humanitarian aid is the worst thing in the world. It's it's not. It's you know just the fact that on the ground what what exactly is a used war, you know, that again uh, is raised. I mean the Brazilians raised it when they recently declined to provide um their armored vehicles to to, to Ukraine. There was a shipment of several tens, if not hundreds of of this particular, um, I'm not even sure what the construction is called. It's not a tank, but it essentially lets you carry wounded soldiers and allows, allows it, it's troop carriers, essentially, because the Ukrainians claimed, hey, uh, Brazilians, if you provide us these, we promise we won't send troops into battle and they'll, they'll be used only for transporting wounded troops from the front lines of combat in Zaporozhye and Donetsk back to the uh, you know mil- military and regional hospitals. And the Brazilians said, we don't believe you, so we won't be providing these uh, armored vehicles to you. Zelensky, sorry. So the Brazilians openly denounced you know that those particular attempts, but so it does show that you know Ukrainians they try to receive an aid from almost anybody, including Serbians, through these uh, covert means and these kind words, such as well, it's just humanitarian. We're going to assist wounded soldiers, uh, or the air defense they wish to receive from is- Israel was you know the claim was well, it's it'll be only used for defense. Uh, of course, you can trust us. Uh, returning back to Vucic, I honestly think he is—he's not a trustworthy character. We'd have to remember that Serbia is in a very kind of dire state, almost in a more serious state than Turkey. It's you know economically, it's somewhat subjugated to the countries around it. It doesn't have clear access to the sea. The Adriatic doesn't have any strong ports, any port presence. Imports and exports are heavily controlled. Uh, a lot of it—a lot of its population is—is is in fact Orthodox and conservative, but there is a slow modernization ongoing where people to zoom into young populations are in fact being infiltrated by this like TikTok liberal culture. And so they do want closure with the EU. And of course that means closure with NATO. And so there's a lot of pressure on nutrition. Again, these, these are politicians, Conrad, they're liberal politicians, Demo- they're democratic. So they do want the votes of the newly, of the new people who've just turned 18, 19 and 20, who are eligible to vote in the next election. And so you have to kind of appease them by appearing trendy and friendly with all the, you know Western countries and Hollywood, etc. So there is that too. And Putin is not a good character in these eyes. He's not cool. He's not, um, you know, you know, he's kind of like a. I mean, they painted him as an international criminal. So the Serbian politicians may betray their long-term, uh, I guess, their long-term friends, not the Serbian people, but the politicians may betray Russia and their long-term Orthodox friends in order to gain short-term victory at least in certain regional as well as major parliamentarian elections.
0: I guess something that we could hope to also see amidst a Russian victory would be this if this is really broad before we also start talking about BRICS and everything going on there would be in theory if a Russian victory in Ukraine would see Moldova eventually also elect a pro-Russian president and be kind of that state that Ukraine was before, that buffer state between Romania. Maybe you could somehow eventually this probably isn't likely, see somehow a lesser a less bellicose leader in Romania, but then You could also have a nationalist leader in Serbia that knows it has Russian civilizational support. And then you could even see countries like Greece, like I said, Bulgaria, Macedonia, even Montenegro eventually somehow after this recent election, like start to actually fully elect the Russian world would would make more geographic sense as the Ukrainian question, I guess, is dealt with properly. And I mean, again, that's the, uh, I mean, that's the multipolar hope, but that's also, I mean, and, and we could also see how, I mean, again, we haven't talked about it in a few weeks, even months, but that's how, that's the Turkey question, the Turkey-Russia question comes back into play, right? I mean, we just talked about all this dirt Erdogan's thrown on it, right? I mean, this is, if what we just said happens and the orthodox civilizational sphere can kind of expand within the next years as Russia, hopefully, again, achieves more than just a Pyrrhic victory in Ukraine, then, you know, that St. Uh, that Paisios moment, that civilizational battle, that, NATO slash Turkey kind of dual civilizational head, you know, of that ancient ally of Russia, as well as the modern, the ancient enemy of Russia and this modern enemy of Russia, you know, that conflict is going to start, I think, again, coming more to the fore as we've always predicted it would.
1: Yeah, of course, Ukraine is just the contemporary sort of first chapter, and if Serbia, you know, if Serbian politicians think it's wise to kind of hold back on the whole Ukraine issue, I can't if I was a Serbian, I would maybe not judge them too harshly because at the moment it's not very clear as to what the Kremlin's ideas are. I Imagine it. Just to think about this very clearly. If and I think some of our listeners need to consider this. They say, "Well, Serbia needs to support Russia no matter what." But does Russia actually support itself? How do we know? Lukashenko recently said uh, quite clearly. And Lukashenko is not Russian; he's Belarusian. but you know he does see himself as sort of this leader of an allied state to Russia. You know, Svyaznoye Gosudarstvo, etc. Lukashenko said that, well, if the counter-offensive fails, maybe at the end of this summer, maybe early autumn, we might see a, a peace treaty. So even Lukashenko is kind of alluding to the fact that, well, there may be this uh, strange peace treaty that occurs between the Russian Federation and Ukraine. Maybe on the the, the borders they're standing on now, perhaps there'll be, uh, maybe Ukraine will even concede Kherson and Zaporozhye. Not that Zelensky wants to do that. He's talking about taking Crimea this entire time. But, you know, nevertheless, if a peace treaty occurs... It'll look very awkward on Serbia, who just threw all of its regional alliances into the dumpster and all of its sort of rapport building with the West, which uh, suddenly, and Russia suddenly, you know, call, starts calling the West our nice partners again, and, you know, Dragia or whatever it used to say, and suddenly there's this, and Serbia is again left in this weird early 2000s state where it just got completely embarrassed and humiliated by NATO in a very, of course, Condescending like fashion. I'm not saying that the bombing was justified, but Serbia it, it took a while for Serbia to actually recover from being basically attacked by NATO since you know since those uh, disgusting late 90s years. And in fact, Serbia has reached now this, this point where it can actually make uh, solid statements and actually take positions in in terms of international relations, and it can actually side with people and have a particular say. And it wouldn't want to throw that away on some sort of cowardly Kremlin peace treaty, would it? that's the thing that's what i think that's metropolitan onufri and a lot of these bishops notice how they haven't necessarily the ukrainian bishops they haven't necessarily sided with the russian world yet either because the russian world may even be betrayed and this is not us just saying this because we're black pilled and we're depressed no this is Stelkov has mentioned this too the fact that if the kremlin billionaires and elites who we speak about in april episode 10 11 decide that a peace treaty is is worth more than a victory over ukraine if they decide that you know, for utilitarian reasons. Maybe they don't care about the future of the orthodox civilization as much as, say, we do and our listeners do. Perhaps money is worth more. Maybe deals with Western countries is worth more than, you know, actually uh, taking Ukraine and sorting out these monastery affairs, right? Like, there's that consideration. And I can't necessarily blame Serbia for maybe holding back and not supporting their ancient ally, especially, and not just Serbia as a country, but Serbian politicians, you have to keep in mind; they just saw what Prigozhin did three weeks ago, drove at Moscow. We still don't have any answers as to why that happened, who was in charge, who's the actual culprit, Putin. I mean, openly called Prigozhin a traitor, but there was no repercussions for his action, his actions. So, what exactly is happening? We don't know. What's the Ministry of Defense in Russia doing? Who's in charge? What are the plans? What are the long-term plans? It's still, the, you know, you mentioned Conrad, the vague notion of the notification. Well what does like what, what is Serbia's position on that? Uh, pretty much nothing. Serbia denazified ages ago. So did Croatia. So it's like what's the stance on the denazification? Well, I don't know, it doesn't doesn't really affect the Serbian people. So it is a strange balancing, right? Because you want what's best for your own people first and foremost, and only later do you want to adhere to maybe the Russian world ideas, which may not even the Russian world of course hinges on the church and the Orthodox people not the decisions of the Kremlin or the vague billionaire politicians which which sit inside of it on occasion trying to pretend that they support Putin when in fact they could be hindering his actual plans.
0: I completely agree with that assessment. And again, like, remember the map, right? A lot of people, anyone, you know, who's been following the conflict since the beginning knows the map, right? There's the the total Russian victory, which is the co-Black Sea coast and everything east of the Dnieper. There's, you know, the general russian victory which is the black sea coast plus Kherson, Zaporozhia, a few donbass a few other uh or, you know a few other things and then there's uh you know the pyrrhic russian victory which is basically what we just discussed like the four regions crimea and that's it and then you get into a ukrainian victory which is you know, uh just Donbas and Crimea or then even just Crimea or something like that, you know, you start to get into where it's just a loss for the Russians and that would be that would be terrible and then the real question becomes like is that even really going to be a solution? Like is anything short of like either a new rump state or like, you know, all the land east of the Dnieper is anything short of that going to actually prevent another conflict from breaking out within the next decade? I'm skeptical. And and like i just said like this 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 affects all the countries kind of in the region and this brings to mind you know that's you probably saw it, that squabble between zelensky and the bulgarian prime minister where zelensky freaked out about the bulgarians not wanting to give him you know all the weapons that he wanted and you know he said he zelensky was like oh you know hope you're never in my shoes would you just say please seize my territory putin you know but bulgaria i believe that they did elect their like more pro russian government which you know, Bulgaria and Moldova are kind of these two other countries that have always still been able to oscillate in between those worlds, even though, you know, Bulgaria institutionally has very much, you know, they joined like the, they've joined like the EU, like the banking zone and all that kind of stuff. So it's, uh, it's not too great for them. And Moldova, you know, they're, uh, it seems that their party Dodon and uh, the pro-Russian party is being pretty hardly suppressed. So, we will, uh, or rather strongly suppressed. So it, it's, uh, it could still happen. The Moldovan people are not necessarily happy with the globalists, but in general, they may still stay in power there.
1: Yeah, and of course, uh, you know, the one wrench that may be thrown into the wheels of, you know, the stick in the wheels here uh, could be, of course, the the BRICS subject matter. So the, the actual opposition to the EU, to NATO, to world hegemony, this is the plan B, is that, hey, well, if the Russian-Ukrainian solution isn't dealt with, perhaps through cooperation with these other non-christian but also anti-american or perhaps even you know a bit neutral to american states perhaps a world could be built which is a bit more a bit fairer than the one we live in today and in fact that's the hope of the brick summit coming up in august which uh you know frankly a lot of countries actually are lining up to join uh as we as we've seen recently
0: oh yeah and of course the summit's coming up in august like you said and it's And it seems that some of the things that are going to come out of that, I mean, the big thing we heard, you know, just these past few days is the supposed, uh, you know, beginning of setting up the gold-backed currency among BRICS. which, I mean, this comes in the midst of really extreme de-dollarization. I think there's more trade going on in non-dollars now than, like, in recent history at all. I mean, India and Russian trade is happening in non-dollars most trade between Saudi Arabia and other countries in so many ways happening to non-dollars, especially after OPEC decided not to cut production and continues to just kind of give the finger to the United States. And I mean, this is big. I mean, just remember, I mean, just think about what happened to Saddam Gaddafi for so much smaller disruptions to the global economic force. And again, of course, the whole Iraq thing, you can never leave out the Israel factor. Israel, you know, it still gets most of its oil from Iraq. It's still been being stolen. And the And we we went in there for them. And of course, Israel's influence has waned dramatically as Saudi Arabia and Iran have reproached, as Assad has remained in power in Syria, as Lebanon has, you know, remained sectarian and all of that. It seems that Israel, I mean, they've got Azerbaijan and they've got the U.S. You know, that's kind of who they've got really, really going for them right now. And they continue to uh they continue to covertly support Ukraine as well, which is obviously we mentioned the Azov Israel thing before and those guys are now back in Russia. So I mean back in, you know, on the front lines. And as as the BRICS summit approaches, I think some of the biggest things we're gonna see are most likely I think Ethiopia and even Egypt and possibly even Belarus are going to be uh I, I don't know about admitted, but they're gonna kind of be moved along to the next process of becoming full members. And again, Ethiopia is the second most populated country in Africa. It's massive, you know, 100 plus million people, you know, Christian mostly. And between this and the new currency stuff, this is all in South Africa, of course. The heads of South Africa also just invited the president of every African nation so we could see places like night. I mean, we could see Nigeria and BRICS and eventually, you know, Nigeria is on track to eventually overtake the United States in populations, so... Who knows how many actual admissions we're going to see. I don't know what we're going to call it after all these other countries get in. Like, it's not going to be BRICS anymore. It's going to be called... Who knows? Maybe that's what we'll see. Is there going to be... I mean, this is going to be a big meeting, of course. There's been more talk of BRICS in the past few months than there had ever been talk of BRICS ever in the past years it's existed. So maybe they're going to come up with a new name. What do you think?
1: It could be, I mean, they could just call it a multipolar economic alliance or something of that sort. But it does seem like some of these articles uh, online, they do bring up certain you know possibilities of which countries may be joining. There's roughly 19 countries that have applied to join the BRICS, the BRICS economic alliance. And six of them, at least, that keep coming up in all these lists, right? And Saudi Arabia, of course, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, which is, of course, the neighbor of Iraq, why the Iraq war even started in the first place. But small a small country, but quite rich and, I guess, important in the Persian Gulf. Of course, Argentina, Egypt, and Indonesia, which are also mentioned. Argentina is an interesting one because um not really read up too much on them, but it could be one of the, I guess, uh, additional members. Of course, the neighbor of Brazil, it could, of course, have a incredible effects for South America. South American independence uh, from the, the hegemony of the northern neighbor is incredibly important. So the more countries in South America join that the better, I think, for the general health of the region. Uh, Egypt, of course, joining in just a... Uh, Notice some a lot of these lists, they don't mention Iran, even though Iran, I think, would have I- Iran, I think, does need to be considered very seriously. I know Syria is in a state of you know slight disrepair at the moment as they're recovering from their long standing civil war and ISIS uh US invasion. But uh, Iran at the moment, uh besides you know the whatever happened during COVID, is I think in a in a in a state where it could actually benefit both China, Russia, some of these other major BRIC countries and uh it, India as well. Uh, in terms of Belarus joining, uh, I think a lot of people don't consider the fact that Russia obviously would support Belarus joining India and Modi, perhaps. There could be some questioning there considering India has, uh, you know, Modi did attend the G7 summit earlier this year. And, you know, the kind of he is closing India in, you know, in terms of how the, the world is aligning India is becoming a bit more Western in that regard, or at least maybe this is a temporary stance of the Indian government. But China does have a very tight friendship with Belarus. It's very interesting. Uh, Lukashenko is almost, it's similar to Kazakhstan, where Kazakhstan tried to seek multiple partnerships with its neighbors. Belarus does not depend entirely on Russia. In fact, with Belarus and China, China might actually advocate for a Belarusian leadership, uh, membership in BRICS and as well as uh, as well as some of these other countries like Iran, which China has you know, friendly relations with, so I do think I, I do think there's some big consideration for these. I guess what, what can we just say? Like dictatorial countries, I guess these uh the third sort of not liberal but not communist, but in fact somewhat dictatorial nations, which uh, the West has kind of shunned for all these decades. I think they do have there's a huge possibility that they may enter into BRICS, and this will in fact bring about a real. Uh, philosophically speaking, a real palpable multipolarity because you will have these nations with uh, you know sort of theocratic Iran as well as a very staunch not i mean Belarus does claim to be democratic, but who are we getting here right Lukashenko rules like a like a sider so he has to you know keep, keep put his foot down and have people vote for him It's all good, but it will bring this sort of difference this different flavor and in fact it could be in order um, you, you know I'm speaking futuristically here, but this could be a conditioning. Uh, of 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 all these countries for future different political systems right or maybe future imperial imperial russia to also be a member of brics because russia does need to transform its its useless and degenerate federational model into something a bit more not just modern but also historically palpable historically um historically accurate because the federation model as it works as it seems now simply doesn't function it's just Uh, it's surprising that it's holding together and it's a testament more towards the hard work of the Russian people and the Russian economy rather than anything else.
0: Well, I mean, I was just going to call those countries, you know, the autarkic spiritual monarchies. You know, they have to kind of play the democracy game, you know, the communism again, you know, always, even then still playing the democracy meme and that led to the, you know... We have to do the whole election thing and the whole parliament thing and all of that. But, I mean, think about BRICS in general. It's kind of either made up of states like that or just, like, actual monarchies. I mean, like, Saudi Arabia, if it joins, like, actual monarchy, you know, like, that's, like, not like a fake monarchy like Sweden or, you know, the Netherlands. Like, it's like a king that has, like, actual power. You know, I mean, you have... You know, I guess India would be that. Is actually, you know, I think they're. I mean, I don't know if the votes actually are counted properly. Who knows? But it's you know the, supposedly the world's largest democracy, right? But, I mean, look at places like Belarus, places like Ethiopia. Even, I mean, the president there has, like, I think, taken a lot of power on himself that the West would, you know, would not a hope that a centralized leader would take. So, I mean, it would be in theory, it could be this kind of union of autarchic rulers that then are not able to be taken out by, you know zog because they are you know they have this union they have this cooperation they have potentially even their own currency that they use between each other and even with other countries and stuff so that's uh that's big stuff that's coming and yeah i mean i think as the meeting gets closer as well these are two big meetings right the vilnius nato meeting and the BRICS summit i don't know if i mean i think that'll be where we're going to see if this is going to escalate or if this is going to tone down between these two meetings yeah that's right uh Generally speaking, in the
1: next few days, we'll find out exactly what set of Vilnius, but my prediction is uh, we'll probably see a care package for Ukraine in military aid again, maybe a bit a bit larger than the one the US provided recently on the two United States ones, which were under a billion dollars, but still, and this news talk about cluster munitions is a little bit embarrassing, but possibly we'll see some large collective fund that is sent to Ukraine, maybe, uh, you know, the worst case scenario for the Russian side is uh, F-16s, or sort of a collective donation of fighter jet planes to the Ukrainian military. Again, there's nothing the Russians will probably do or say that, you know, that you know, there's nothing that Putin or any of his colleagues could say that, well, look, the red line has been crossed, you cannot provide F-16s or some of these other new age fighter jets to the Ukrainian army and air force. it's That doesn't swing anymore uh NATO obviously is not fearful of uh of the rhetoric coming out of the Kremlin and they're simply going to do as they see fit uh, you know, as they've done in 20 uh 2022 and they've made really strong statements remember the Zaporozhia power plant they've said look if uh if Russia uses any tactical nuclear weapons or tries to use the power plant as a as a source of like I don't know uh I guess environmental contamination against Ukraine we will uh we will intervene so you know, there have been some pretty powerful statements from the NATO chiefs as well as Stoltenberg himself. So NATO really is showing its kind of uh, ferocious face in, the, in the, for the first time in maybe decades, right? that NATO is kind of giving Russia this the middle finger. And whether or not Russia responds by simply uh, finally you know, pushing back against Ukraine, or if they respond with uh, maybe a peace treaty of some sort, which Lukashenko is alluding to, right, recently, so, which is quite scary that he's mentioned that. We we're not hearing that out of the Kremlin, but it's not off the table, definitely. Not, not with all these billionaires and rich politicians who wish to unfreeze their assets overseas. Because recall, the West has frozen in hedge funds, banks, and investment firms over $150 billion American dollars worth of Russian assets, which is, well, that's about as much money as the West has provided to Ukraine over the last year and a half. So that much money is frozen Russian wealth overseas. Which, for some reason, Russia didn't bring back into its own country and then invest in, 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 into itself. Which, you know, Molifev Sadgard keeps mentioning this that how stupid was the Russian economic model to not consider the fact that if they started a special military operation, military operation, all of its assets could be seized and there could be more sanctions. You know, it's a huge uh, miscalculation on their part. But definitely, uh, we'll be looking forward to the Vilnius summit. Hopefully, NATO doesn't go as hard pro Ukraine and if Zelensky doesn't show up and have this cry fit then perhaps uh, maybe, you know, maybe things will change. But generally, I think there will be some sort of escalation in terms of aid.
0: Well, like you said, I think the worst case scenario is, you know, I think this is possible definitely Sweden enters NATO, and then there's some kind of agreement on if this, this, that, or the other happens at the ZNPP at the power plant in Zaporozhia, then we're going to go in or the Poles and the Lithuanians are going to go in or the Romanians are going to go in or whatever, you know, so... I mean it could be the Romanians they're physically I think the closest down to the to that part of the region so we're good. that that I guess is worst case scenario there we got to hope that that doesn't happen but I think I think we're going to see like you said that care package in Sweden get in probably and worst case scenario some power plant agreement and maybe I don't know something to do with Kaliningrad or maybe something with Turkey where Erdogan says something even more retarded so we'll see we're going to be watching it closely Uh, we've been going for a while here so it's probably getting about time to wrap up do you have anything that uh you want to leave everybody with as far as the news goes
1: only that you know if you do see disturbing footage from the Ukraine regarding the church persecution which we're very likely to see in the next week or two um you know stay strong remember God God, of course, is, is on our side. He's on the side of the martyrs and those persecuted. So those confessors and those people suffering and being beaten and taken to prisons, God is with them in Ukraine at the moment. And your prayers are there too. But most importantly is, you know, you have to look after yourselves first. You know, God, God of course, cares for the people in Ukraine, but you do have to, if you're an Orthodox Christian, continue to attend church. Do not fall lukewarm like these negative actors that we've spoken about. Do not become, you know disassociated, you know, stay connected to God, stay connected to the truth. This will help you in, you know, your uh, your your physical as well as spiritual life and uh in, in all matters. So that's the one thing is not to get distracted by bad news and to actually retain a connection to, to the church despite what's happening in Ukraine or any of these strange news. These you know whatever happens, be it nuclear war, be it you know World War Free, whatever escalation or de-escalation occurs you know just like the just like the diasporas of, of old like the ones who left the Soviet Union or you know the Greek diasporas which left d- during the occupation of the Ottoman Empire they you have to stay strong despite what's going on at home or abroad you have to just uh, remain true to the Orthodox faith for those of you Orthodox Christian for those listeners who are not Orthodox Christian, of course please consider visiting your local church and speaking to your priest there. The best time would be either Saturday night or Sunday morning wait until about 10 11 o'clock when the priest is usually free and just inquire as to what is this religion about? Is this actually the original form of Christianity? How ancient is it? Do you have English liturgies? Do you actually have services in the English language? Where can I learn more about, do you have any book recommendations? Things of that that nature. So it's definitely worth keeping an open mind uh, in that regard, because as we see, Christianity is still the leader in terms of world affairs and the world does seem to kind of revolve around a Christian on the God's commandments and Christian understanding of morality and ethics it seems like the bad guys in world affairs do not follow those commandments and the good guys definitely do if you believe in good guys and bad guys so definitely stay aware
0: uh, that was very well said and I think you know if you're going to church you can have the names of some monks or bishops or just the words you know the monks of the Kiev caves lava red commemorated at your services I think they would appreciate that keep them in your prayers obviously and And with all of that, you know, worldwarnow.substack.com, that's where you'll find everything, some articles coming out shortly. Be sure to subscribe there through email. Make a Substack account and comment and like. We really appreciate that. Share things on Substack as well. Uh, Subscribe to us on YouTube as well, just the World War Now channel. Follow us on Twitter, worldwarnow underscore. Follow me on Twitter, GnomeRad, that's Gnome. Follow Dimitri at Ocanonist. Follow us on Telegram, worldwarnow Telly, that's T-E-L-E. Uh hopefully we'll have a live stream coming up here on the YouTube channel pretty soon. You know, if something big happens, we'll try to go live. That's kind of how we try to do it. But yeah, subscribe, follow us everywhere. Like you said, uh keep us in your keep us in your prayers. Keep the church in your prayers, you know, go to church. And uh with all of that, uh, we'll see you next time.